Through this time on earth, Jesus has made some enemies. Jesus has made some critics and people who want to see uh, his demise at this point. And in Mark chapter 12, if you you recall, uh, as we've been studying this specific chapter, uh, a group of people, numerous groups of people, have come up to Jesus wanting to get rid of him, wanting to see him out of the way. At this point, the things that Jesus is saying, it's cramping their style. They don't like it. They want him out of the way so they can do their thing and not having this person around who's exposing them for who they are and their hypocrisy. So they want to get rid of him. But the problem is that they can't get rid of him by force because he's so popular at this point and he has uh, such a following that they don't want to get rid of him by force because then they would look like the bad guys. So what they've decided to do, they've come together and they, what they want to do is get Jesus to say the wrong thing in a group of people so they could uh, discredit him, diminish his influence and get rid of him. Call him a blasphemer and get him out of the way or get him in trouble with the government and get him out of the way. Uh, They're trying to diminish Jesus' role, but not by force. They're trying to do it subtly and it's not working. If you recall in uh, the beginning of the chapter, uh, they come to Jesus, the Pharisees do, with this trick question that if he answers it this way, we'll have him. If he answers it this way, uh, we'll we'll have him. Either way he answers this question, uh, we're we're gonna get him in trouble. And Jesus takes their trick question and he answers it masterfully. And he cuts right down the middle and stumps them. So here the critics are trying to stump Jesus and he turns it right back on them. So Jesus won, critics zero. And then the Sadducees come up to him and again with the same idea. We're going to ask him this question. We're going to stump him and then, and then we'll be able to expose him uh, for what he is, that, he, that he's not the Messiah. So they, they, have this, they have this perfect little scenario that they're going to bring to him. And again, they come to him, they ask him a question, not looking for an answer as much as just trying to expose him and, and get him out of the way. And again, Jesus answers the question in a masterful way, a perfect way that doesn't stump him, that doesn't uh, cause him to get tangled up in their question, and it actually stumps the critics. So again, Jesus 2, critics 0. I mean, they're striking out more than A-Rod does in October. Uh, It's just not working. They're not able to get Jesus to fall, to stumble. And today we're going to look at another individual. Now the scribes come up to Jesus and they're going to ask him a question as well, trying to get Jesus stumped. And what I love about the passage this morning uh, is uh, as we look at the just a few verses this morning, I don't know if anywhere in the Bible uh, a group of verses sums up what we want Grace Road Church to be. What we want Grace Road Church to model and be about, uh, just compacted in the set of verses that we're going to look at is what, as a staff, we pray uh, for you, uh, what we pray for this church as far as our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. So I'm excited to look at this text this morning, Mark chapter number 12, verse number 28. If you have a Bible, uh, Mark 12, 28. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you. And if you don't have a Bible, that one's yours to keep. Uh, Mark chapter number 12, verse number 28. 
And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. They're hearing uh, these questions that are being asked of Jesus. And, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is most important of all? So again, this, this scribe is trying to trip Jesus up. But you can also see that uh, he, his, God's working on his heart a little bit because he doesn't have just the same terrible motives that the first two groups had. He actually sees that um, Jesus has answered uh, these guys well. And now he's starting to get intrigued by this, uh, this Jesus. And he, he says, hey, I got a question too. But you can tell his heart is, is soft to the fact that Jesus is answering people well. Uh, Jesus is becoming more and more credible uh, with this scribe. And a scribe was a teacher of the law. I mean, and a studier of the law. They were scholars. Uh, they were smart dudes who spent a lot of time dissecting the Old Testament, studying it out. And, and uh, they studied it so much and in, in with such detail that one of the things they did is they took every command in the Old Testament and laid it out. They counted each command and determined that there was a, a 613 rules in the Old Testament. They had some free time. Um, not only that, but after they took these 613 rules, they actually took the time to separate, separate like which ones were positive ones, like honor your father and mother, and which ones were negative, like thou shalt not type commands. Uh, furthermore, with all of their free time, they then started adding values to the different commands and prioritizing them and saying, these ones are more important than these ones. Uh, that's what they did. And so it was a common question and a common thought like, hey, what's, what's the greatest one? What's, what's the most important commandment or the, the most important couple of commandments? So uh, it was a reasonable question to come up to Jesus with. And I mean, it's reasonable to me too because 613 commandments is a little cumbersome. Uh, I, I have trouble remembering uh, short lists that my wife gives me. She gave me a list of three things to get at Lowe's last week. She said, I need you to pick up these three things. I was halfway to Lowe's and forgot the things she asked me to pick up. True story. So 613 laws, rules, commands would be just overwhelming to the point where I would have the same attitude. Hey, can we can we narrow the list a little bit? Can we prioritize these? Can you give me like a few to really focus on and remember? Because I don't have a chance with 613. So that's what he did. He came up to Jesus and said, out of all the commands, what, what's the most important? And now the problem with this uh, or, or where they were trying to stump Jesus is if Jesus says this one's the most important, then they can say, oh, he's diminishing this one. He's saying this one's not important. He's negating this command, and, and, and it would have been a dispute. So that was the trick, if there was a trick in here, and we're going to see how Jesus answers the question. What one is the most important commandment? Verse number 29, Jesus gives the answer. The most important is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, this was a masterful, masterful answer, uh, and here's why. Because uh, what Jesus first does is he pulls a commandment uh, from Deuteronomy 6.4, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That was Deuteronomy 6.4. That would have been a verse that the Jews memorized. They quoted it in the morning and in the evening. And then he goes to Leviticus 19.18 and grabs, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, hey, these are the two uh, commandments, the two greatest commandments, love God and love people. And the reason this is so masterful is because he's not diminishing any one of the 613 commandments because all of the commandments throughout the scriptures relate to either our love for God or our love for people. You see this in the 10 commandments. uh, 10 commandments, the first four deal with our relationship with God. Don't put any other gods before him. Don't take his name in vain. They deal with our relationship with God. The last six deal with our relationship with other people. Uh, uh, don't covet, don't steal, honor your parents, etc. So every commandment has to do with our love for God or our love for people. So Jesus didn't diminish any one of the commandments. He wasn't negating any of them. So as the scribe comes up and says, hey, what's the most important one? Jesus says, love God, love other people. And every commandment could be Uh, can fall under one of those two. So it was a tremendous answer. And and to quote from Deuteronomy 6.4, the scribe would have loved that. Leviticus 19.18, the scribe would have loved that. So it was a perfect answer for this scribe. So what does the scribe say in response to Jesus' answer? Verse number 32. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. Just tremendous, because you got to imagine Jesus really needed the affirmation, uh, being uh, perfect and uh, completely knowledgeable about everything. I'm glad that he, uh, he he's had to be happy the scribe was pleased with his answer. You have truly said he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So the, the, the scribe totally agrees. So even if his initial uh, motivation was to trip up Jesus, at this point when Jesus gives a perfect answer, the scribe is in complete agreement. He says, you're right. It's all about loving God and loving other people. And, uh, and then he takes it even a step further and says, uh, you know what? That's even more important than these, these sacrifices that we're doing, these burnt offerings that we're doing, which was taking it to a whole nother level. Uh, he was admitting, hey, this sacrificial system is not more important than what's internally in our hearts. This was before the cross, before Jesus would be a true and better sacrifice for us. The scribe is saying, I'm with you, Jesus. It's all about loving God. It's all about loving other people. And so any attempt to trip Jesus up fails again, and the uh, the scribe is on board. And we can kind of keep following the story in this dialogue, but... uh, For the sake of time and what I really feel like God wants us to spend our time talking about this morning, I want to stop here and revisit what was just said. Uh, Because what Jesus just called us to is pretty weighty. And it's pretty difficult to live out. 
And I know it's easy to kind of glaze over familiar passages where uh, you talk about loving God and, and, and loving our neighbor, and we can kind of just uh, glaze over those um, and not really understand the weight of what's being said. And another temptation that we all face is when we look at a difficult command like loving our neighbor as oneself, uh, if you're anything like me, the temptation is to, to reconstruct that a little bit and say, well, what Jesus was saying there is this, and we kind of minimize it or diminish it, um, or we just explain it away. But biblical Christianity doesn't say explain away passages or minimize them, but rather adapt your life to them. And, and instead of looking at what he says there and just kind of glazing over it, I want us to review it and really take a look at what he's calling us to uh, as a follower of Jesus Christ. And the first thing he calls us to in the passage that we looked at is a love for God. That's what he's calling us to, a genuine love for God. And I think it's important that we understand the greatest commandment is not obey, obey, obey. The greatest commandment is love, namely God and others. That's the command of Scripture, is to have this love for God. And then he goes on to describe what this type of love, this whole type of love looks like. And the first thing he says is that we are to love him with all of our hearts. And that's the seat of our emotions, which means it is an emotional type of of love. It is not a love that says, well, the Bible says that I'm supposed to love God, so I'll try, I'll do it, I'll be committed, I'll discipline myself to love God. It's not that type of love. A heartfelt love, to say love God with all of your heart, is a, a love that is a I want to type love. It is understanding who God is, uh, his grace, his mercy, his love for you, and being so uh, captivated by that and enamored by that and gripped by the fact that we have a God, a creator who loves us, uh, that we have a heartfelt want to love back. You know, when you're dating someone and uh, you're getting to know them and you just want to spend all of your time with that person. It's new. You'll drive two hours to, to go see them because you just every moment you get to spend with them uh, brings you joy. Uh, you'll stay up till 1 or 2 a.m. in the morning talking on the phone just because you love this person and uh, uh, you enjoy being with them. Uh, that's the type of love. It's a heartfelt love. Uh, and then you get married and you start going to bed at 10.30 and it, uh, you're like, why did we stay up till one? Uh, we had our whole lives together. Um, so uh, when we love God in that way, it's a love that says, I want to spend time with you. Uh, I, I, I want to sit at your feet. I'm captivated by you. It's not drudgery. It's not a command. It's not a discipline. It's not merely a commitment. It is a heartfelt love that says, I enjoy God. I want to spend time with him. He calls us to love him with all of our heart. And then he says, all of our soul, which is Everything, the, the very seat of our being at that point uh, is our soul. He says, love him with all of your soul and to, to know all of your existence, to know what this looks like. Uh, you see this with mothers day in and day out as it relates to their love for their children. 
This week, I have had the pleasure of having a sick child in my home that has thrown up roughly on average, if I did the math, every 30 minutes. Uh, And it was exhausting. It's a lot of work as uh, your child throws up, you clean it all up, you disinfect everything, you do the laundry, and no sooner does it happen again. So my wife and I, between comforting the child, cleaning up, trying to just uh, do damage control, it's a lot of work. It's exhausting when you have a sick child there. And uh, no time during that whole situation did my wife ever go, you know, listen, I I love her, but my love has limits, and I'm done. I mean, I cleaned up the throw up like three times, and that's all I got. She's going to have to start caring for herself because she has exhausted my love for her. She didn't do that because a mother's love for her child, when you love someone with all of your existence, with all of your soul, then no sacrifice is something that seems to be too great. You're willing to do what the situation calls for and what the relationship calls for because you absolutely love your child. So you're willing to do those things even when it's hard. And when we love God in the same way, even when uh, circumstances aren't awesome, even when they're not comfortable, uh, our love for him compels us to do what the relationship calls for because it's a want to love. We love him with all of our heart. We love him with all of our soul. Then he goes on to say not only that, that we're to love him with all of our mind. And I think this is important because sometimes I think our tendency is to love God maybe just with our heart, um, could be an extreme way, and that is we don't really pay attention to who he is. Uh, We kind of want to love a God that we've made in our own mind that likes the things that we like. He dislikes the things that we dislike, and that's who my God is, and I, I love him, and I'm passionate about singing to that God. Uh, Instead of taking the time to open up the scriptures and say, I'm going to find out who this God is. I want to learn more about him because I love him. I want to know as much about this uh, God as possible and as much about my Savior as possible. I want to get to know him. I want to know him for who he is. Uh, So we don't write off... uh, studying the scriptures and learning about him uh, and, and spending time learning the gospel and what he's done because we're, it's, it's an intellectual love based on truth. So it's not just an emotional love, though it very much needs to be. We can't take the opposite extreme and just love him intellectually with facts, uh, but it's both. It's a want-to, heartfelt love that also uh, is based on who he is, and what he's done based on facts. And then lastly, it says that we are to love him with all of our strength. And this is, when you, you see that word strength, you think like exertion, like that, that, that it's going to be, uh, there's some work, there's some effort uh, that it entails. Uh, and any relationship calls for this where you're going to have to put forth effort. And, and if when you have all of these things, when your heart is in it, then any effort, any commitment, any call to the relationship uh, you want to do. Uh, my kids aren't old enough, unfortunately, to... Um, 
buy their own gifts for mom. So obviously I bought my wife uh, Mother's Day gifts for them. Uh, when I bought that gift, I didn't say, oh, here you go, honey. Uh, that was $50 out of the checking account. I hope you're happy. That wouldn't have went well for me. Uh, that wasn't my attitude because I love my wife. I think she's a tremendous mom. I love what she does for the kids. And, and because of my relationship with her, no matter what it costs, what, whatever effort uh, or strength that it takes, I want to do those things. Those things seem very reasonable. And when we love God, when it is not just a, I do this out of duty, I do this out of obligation, I come to church because I'm supposed to, when we love God, we will, we'll have that same attitude of, I want to do this because I am in love with God. And so if our attitude is, oh, yeah, let's, let's go to the 9 a.m. service to get it out of the way so that we could have the rest of our day to ourselves, I think we're missing it. I think we're missing the joy of gathering with God's people uh, out of love for God. If our attitude is, oh, I'm, oh, it's my week to serve in kids' ministry, again, that, that's not what a heart for God looks like. A heart for God says, there's a want to. I love serving. I love doing what the relationship calls for. It's not duty. It's not drudgery. It's something that I enjoy doing because I love him. Anytime you have uh, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse, if we treated that relationship with, oh, I have to spend time with this person. Let's do it and get it out of the way so that I can go about my day. Nobody would call that love. And so what I'd like to do this morning is kind of just ask you to look at your own heart and ask you an honest question and don't be hasty to answer it, although the temptation will be to answer it quick in your mind, but do you love God? Do you have a heart for God? And of course, we're not going to love him perfectly like this, but do you have a heart that longs for God, that wants to pursue him, that wants to sit at his feet? Or is your relationship with him stale, non-existent, where you're kind of going through the motions, but you're not, you're not chasing after God. You're not pursuing him. You don't have a heart that longs for him and has that, that want to. It's an important question. Do we have this type of love for him? Because this is what he's saying is, is, is the most important thing because it fuels everything else. But oftentimes, like any relationship, it can go cold, it can go stale uh, if we neglect it. So my question this morning is, do we have the, this type of love, this type of pursuit for Jesus because of what he has done for us? I am captivated and in love with him. That's the first command. The second, he says, is to love our neighbor as ourself. And to love our neighbor as ourself means that with the same intensity, the same priority, the same desire that you care for yourself, that you care for other people. And that's a tough one. Because if you're anything like me, I wake up thinking about me. And when the alarm goes off, 
I am thinking about me and that I want nine more minutes of sleep. And then it goes from there. And everything along the way is how do I look? What am I going to do? Am I going to get a chance to do this? What's my to-do list? I don't generally wake up going, ah, the alarm is going off. Lord, another opportunity today to start serving other people. So I pray that you'd give me some people in my path to just serve and minister to. Hey, listen, God, today is not about me. It's about other people, about my neighbor. So allow me to minister. I don't generally wake up with that. And don't act like you do either. Uh, so <laughs> you're looking at me like you don't. You don't either. Uh, so, uh, so that's a tough call. Uh, to love our neighbor like we love ourselves. And again, this is an easy one to try to explain away. And, and I've tried. And I, I, I would love to say, you know what neighbor means? It means those who are geographically close to you. And I love my neighbors. Like when they're walking their dog, I wave to them and smile and we talk for a few minutes. They're great. Love on my neighbors. Uh, but that's not what this is calling us to. Because that allows us to excuse uh, our enemies we don't have to love our enemies because, well, they don't live on my street. So, I mean, I would if they lived on my street, but my enemies, the people who have wronged me that I don't like, that irritate me, uh, I can gossip about them. I could be malicious with them. I could use people and uh, not have time for people and be grumpy. Why? Because I'm really nice to my neighbors on my street. I would love to be able to do that with this passage, but Christ doesn't allow us to do that. Uh, he gives the story of the Good Samaritan. And if you didn't grow up in Sunday school, the story of the Good Samaritan is there's a guy going down a street, visiting maybe mom and dad or something. And uh, as he's strolling down the street, uh, some people roll up to him, uh, jack him for all of his stuff, rob him blind, and then they don't leave him like that. They also beat him and leave him half dead. I mean, half dead. That means he is well on his way to death. That is the state that they left him in. But good news, as he's laying there half dead, a religious guy is walking down the street. You can't ask for better luck. This guy had just come from the temple. He was singing, our God is greater. And he was just worshiping the Lord. Things were awesome. And now he's coming down and he sees the guy half dead who was the same ethnic background and everything. Plus he's a religious guy, victory. You know he is going to help him. But the Bible says, that as he was walking down the road and he sees this guy half dead, that he literally walks to the other side of the road and gets out of the way and ignores the guy half dead. Now he had just probably spent time at the temple talking about loving people and how we need to help people and he was all for that. And then as he was going about his busy day, when he had an opportunity to help somebody, he walked to the other side because he's too busy for that. And that would have cost him something. But, good news. Another religious guy's coming down the street. So, bad news for the first one, but the second religious guy is surely going to help this guy half dead. This guy was a Levite. As he's coming down the road, the Bible also says that when he sees this guy half dead, he too goes to the other side of the road and ignores the man that is half dead. 
Maybe he tossed up a prayer for him, wished him well, or said, man, I would love to help that guy if I had the money to help him, but he needs a lot of help, and I just don't have that kind of cash. And he ignores the need again. A third guy is walking down the street, and he was a Samaritan, and the Samaritans were absolutely hated by the Jews. So if there was a guy who could say, oh, oh, is that a Jew? Remember how you called me a dog? Remember how you were hating on me and you don't show me any love? Well, I'm going to do what that priest and that Levite did, and I'm going to walk to the side of the road too, all right? Justice, boy, and, and, and walk to the other side of the road and said, hey, should have been nicer to me, and then I would have helped you out. But if you want to be a hater, I got other things to do. But Jesus says that as this guy is walking down the street, and he sees this Jew half dead, tears off his shirt, he is bandaging up the wounds and stopping the bleeding, picks the guy up, throws him on the donkey, takes him to an inn. Then instead of just saying, hey, he's your problem now, he says, hey, here's two days wages. You take care of this guy. If it costs you any more to take care of him, you let me know. I'll swing by tomorrow and I'll give you the money. You take care of him. He did that for his enemy. And Jesus says, that is loving your neighbor. So any attempt that we would love to make to say, well, my neighbor doesn't mean my enemy, it certainly does. So that's exactly what Jesus was talking about, that we don't just show love for the people who can love us back. We don't just show love for those that are our our same skin color and economic status. We show love to even our enemies. We show love, compassion, and grace to everyone. So again, I, I ask you this morning, as you look back at your week, as you look back at your month, how are we doing? This is what we want as a church, is to, to love God well and love other people well in light of the gospel. And the reality is that if we're honest with ourselves, we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. That's tough to do, to to love my enemies well, and to love God uh, with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's crushing the weight of, uh, of trying to live up to that standard and say, yeah, yeah, I can do that. It's crushing, and it would be easy this morning to be sitting here and feel the guilt and the shame and start saying, you know what, I, I wish I loved God like that, but I don't, and just and be defeated by that. But what I hope that we're, we're at this morning is this, and that, that is that we, we, we want to. We want to pursue God and chase after him. And as we hear this passage and we gather on a Sunday morning and we remember, hey, this is what Christ has done for me and how good he's been for me. I want to have that type of love for him. I want to love my neighbor that way, but I don't. And I fall short, but I'm not content here. I'm not satisfied here. I don't want to stay here. And, and, and I hope we, we feel that struggle of I, this is what I want. I recognize that I'm here, I'm struggling, uh, I get distracted, I've allowed uh, my love for God to grow cold, uh, but I, this is what I want. This is how I want to be. This is a proper response to who God is and what he has done for me and his blessings and his grace. I want this. 
So I hope we're there. I hope we don't just fall under the weight of, I don't live up to this commandment, so uh, I'm just a lousy human being, because that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Christ was our substitute. And although we don't live his law perfectly, as though, although we don't keep this command perfectly, Christ kept it perfectly for us as our substitute. Jesus loved God perfectly. And he demonstrated that when he left the glories of heaven, the, the comforts of heaven, uh, to come to this earth because that is what God wanted. And he, he loved his father, uh, his God, with, with, with all of his strength, soul, mind, and heart, and therefore was willing to come to this earth. And then he loved his neighbor perfectly. And he demonstrated that when he was willing to endure the punishment, the hardship, the persecution, the wrath of God for our sin, and hang in humiliation on a cross to take on the punishment that we deserved. Christ did that for us. He lived this commandment out so that even though we fall short, we can still be loved by God. And it's not until we understand that, it's not until we realize that although I don't keep this perfectly, God's love for me doesn't depend on my good behavior and my keeping the first and the second commandment perfectly. Although he, uh, he set that standard for me, he doesn't relate to me with this conditional love that says, love me first and then I'll love you back. And that's the key to really desiring God. If we, if we want to be here where we love him and we're, we're chasing after him and, and, and we're enthralled by him and in awe of what he's done, we're not going to get there by white-knuckling some obedience and saying, yeah, I feel, feel guilty that I don't love God the way I should. I'm going to try better. I'm going to try harder. I'm leaving here today and I'm going to love God more. That attitude, that commitment will probably get you to the parking lot, possibly to lunch, and then that, that's over. Uh, because white-knuckle obedience, trying to love somebody and determining that you're going to love somebody isn't going to get you very far. If I said, hey, I got this uncle, uh, he lives in Georgia, and you guys need to love him. We can't make ourselves love somebody uh, with no information just out of a commitment, out of a discipline. So how do we grow in our love for God? How do we grow to the point where our heart uh, is in it and it's a want-to, emotional, steady love? And the answer to that is as we reflect on the gospel and we understand how much he first loved us. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because, why? why? How can we grow in this love for God? How can we get to the place where we're not cold and, 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 and lethargic in our relationship with God, but that, that we are growing in a love relationship with him? We love because he first loved us. When we understand that why we were his enemies, why we were sinners, he willingly and proactively laid down his life for us, when we're gripped by the gospel message, his death, his burial, his resurrection for us, 
when it's not just songs that we sing or information that we hear, but when we're actually moved by the truth of his love for us, that's when we begin to grow in our relationship with him. Not when we say, I'm going to try harder, but when we saturate ourselves in his love. When we understand that it's unconditional. On our good days, on our bad days, he loves us the same. When you're loving him back, when you don't love him and you're distracted, he loves you the same. And he's demonstrated that on a cross. He's he's demonstrated that by taking on the punishment that you and I deserved. Because that's what we deserve. The punishment of God for not keeping his law, not keeping the 613 Old Testament laws. Uh, We have fallen short. We didn't keep them. And that deserved punishment. And because of his love for us, he has said, I'll take on the punishment. I'll take on the wrath. Not because you deserve it. Not because you and I had this coming because we've earned his favor. But out of extreme sacrificial love for us, he took on the punishment for us. And that truth should compel us to love God. That should cause us to have a heartfelt, emotional, steady, intellectual love for God. And that's what we work for at Grace Road. We want everything we do to point to our love for God and our love for other people. So that's what drives our Sunday morning gatherings where we exalt and make much of Jesus and make much of the cross and what he's done for us. Why we talk about the gospel a lot to to help you in your relationship with God. That's why we do community groups or grace groups. That's why we have third floor theology classes so that you can understand uh, more about God and grow in your love relationship with him. And that's what fuels why we try to keep the schedule clean during the week and the calendar clean so we're not giving you a ton of stuff to do so you can then take that love for God and love your neighbors with that and love your city well. That's what drives us going downtown to help with open door mission or clean sweep or other neighborhood and city events because we want to love our neighbor and love our city well. Because that's what he's called us to do. And those are the greatest commands and it sums up all the other commands in the scripture to love God and to love others well. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? I just want to ask you a couple of questions. Maybe you're in here this morning and you would be honest and say, no, I, I've never loved God. I've never been moved by his love for me. I've never had a relationship with him. And I just want to say this morning that regardless of what you have done, maybe you look back at your life and you you think you've been too bad to be forgiven, that you've done too many wrong things, that, that God would never want a relationship with you. And I would say the Bible teaches the exact opposite, that regardless of uh, your your life and the sins that you have committed, the damage that you have done, the Bible says that none of those things are too big or bigger than God's grace. That God loves each one of us unconditionally regardless of what you have done and wants to forgive your sins and wants a relationship with you. 
And the way that he has helped bridge that gap and to make that possible is that as he laid down his life on the cross, he did it as a gift and as a sacrifice for our sins. So that our account, our our sin debt could be forgiven and washed away so that we could be united with God and have a personal relationship with him. And so the way we do that is we turn from our sin, we repent, we say we're sorry, and we cease from trusting in our own abilities, in our own work, and in our own behavior, and put our faith and our confidence in Jesus and Jesus alone. The blood that he shed on a cross as a payment for our sin. And I would encourage you, if you've, if you've never received him as savior, as rescuer, as hero of your life and Lord, that you, you would do that this morning. That you would come to him and say, Lord, I, I acknowledge what you've done for me, not because I, I, I deserve it, but out of your love. And I want to turn and lean on Jesus for salvation and, and, and not in myself anymore. And the Bible says that whoever does that, regardless of past Regardless of the the sins you've ever committed, whoever does that becomes a friend of God, a child of God, and forgiven. And I would say this morning, if if you are a Christian, but uh, you look at this passage and, and, and you feel crushed by the weight of it, rather than feel guilt and shame, would you would you recognize that? He took on the guilt and the shame for you. He doesn't want you to leave crushed by the command. He wants you to be so enamored that he kept this command perfectly for you that you desire to pursue after him, rejoice in him, and celebrate him. And that's what we're going to do right now. As we sing these next few songs, let's celebrate the one who paid the cost for us. Let's celebrate the one who paid our debts and gave us new life, who never forgets us for a moment, but loves us unconditionally. And would those truths, the things that we celebrate with the remainder of our service, draw us to pursue after him harder, to love him and to chase him in a great way. Lord, we love you. And we acknowledge that we don't love you as we ought to, but Lord, we do love you and ask that you would help us to continue to know the length, the height, the depth of your love in such a way that we're moved by it, affected by it, and it it changes our lives. Lord, that we wouldn't be comfortable and complacent in our relationship with you, but Lord, that it would be growing as we're more and more gripped by the gospel. And we pray that that would help us and compel us to love others well, to love our city well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.